The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping the show independent and free of advertising. I need to take just a moment and thank Steve Luer for becoming a supporter of How Is This Movie. Thank you so much, Steve. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at howisthismovie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a review on whatever platform you choose to listen. Welcome to part six of The Business of Film, my ongoing series where I look to get an insider's perspective on all things related to the film industry. In this episode, I am once again joined by my friend Margot Donahue, who has worked as a publicist for the past 20 years and has some amazing stories to tell. So let's talk to Margot. So I am pleased to welcome back to the show Margot Donahue, one half of the Book versus Movie podcast, a show that I've been lucky enough to be a guest on and perhaps maybe a guest in the near future. Margot, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the show and uh, take it away. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Dana. You know, this is the Mutual Admiration Society. I really love your podcast. I listened to your Seinfeld one today. I listened to your one about the Dark Knight. Your your show is great. My show that I co-host with another woman named Margot, the two Margos, we, our show is called Book Versus Movie, and we basically talk about movies that are adapted from books. We read the book, we see the movie, and we dissect the differences between them, and we decide which we like better, the book or the movie. And you can find us everywhere social media, and on uh, the web at Book Versus Movie. Well, fantastic. And I urge all of my listeners, if you haven't already checked out Book Versus Movie, I know I've mentioned it on a number of different shows uh, that I've done, but please, please definitely check it out. And it's available wherever podcasts are available, correct? Yes, it is. This is part six of my multi-part series on the business of film. And what I've tried to accomplish with this uh, ongoing series is a better understanding of the, the film industry from the business side of it. In, in previous episodes, I've had Jim Hempel on. I've had uh, writer-director Phil Juano on the show to discuss their experiences. Both of them are writer-directors, filmmakers. Phil Juano, of course, famously did the U2 Rattle and Hum documentary and most recently has a movie on Netflix now called The Veil, uh, starring Jessica Alba and Thomas Jane. And Jim Hempel did an amazing uh, independent film called The Trouble with the Truth, which is the only actual film I've ever reviewed on the history of how is this movie. I dedicated a whole episode to that film. So they were able to share some amazing insights from what it's like behind the camera. What I want to accomplish is with this episode is a better understanding of the other players in the industry. And for this episode, I want to focus particularly on the role of a publicist. So, Margot, I want to turn it over to you. And can you basically explain to me exactly what it is that a publicist does and what their responsibilities are? Absolutely. So thank you so much. People always think they know what publicity is, but they actually don't. Publicity is basically free advertising. You're trying to get for your actor or for the project that you're working on. So you try to get them a segment on the Today Show. Or you try to get a reviewer to, to go see a screening and review that movie. You try to get newspapers, if you're on location shooting a movie and you're, you're looking to get some publicity, that's called pre-publicity, on-set publicity, you're, you're pitching local media to come by and come by the set and interview people to build excitement. That, that's their job. But the thing is, it's like we don't have a budget. It's not advertising. Advertising and PR are two separate things. When you are advertising something, you are 
creating a commercial, let's say, and they you are paying them to air that commercial, so they can't change that commercial, right? When I have an actor being interviewed on camera, let's say the famous Tom Cruise interview when he was on the Today Show, and then all of a sudden he was, you know, talking about Brooke Shields and going way off of script. Uh, you know, you can't control that. You know, when the actors go nuts, that's it. So people think like when they have publicity, they, they get like a segment or something that you can control the segment. They think publicists, I think, are a lot more powerful than they actually are. I think, you know, people live on camera or in an, just talking on an interview with a reporter, if they have a drink or two in them, can really cause a lot of damage. So that's part of a publicist's job is to teach them how to talk without really saying anything, if that makes any sense. But it's, oh, well. yes, so it's basically, you're, you're getting free publicity. You're trying to get people aware of your product or your project or your performer. And you're trying to get it in. And because publicity really is powerful. People see ads everywhere and they just know what an advertisement looks like and they know what this expected of them. When they see an actor or an actress on every single show and they're on the cover of Entertainment Weekly over and over again, that really builds the excitement. That feels real when the editors and producers and the on-air talent say, oh yeah, these are the things you should pay, pay, be paying attention to. That it's, it's a powerful thing, but it's that thing everybody wants. Well, that's interesting. Now, let me ask you this. Um, there's big time agencies in, uh, in Hollywood, William Morris Agency, CAA. Is the publicist attached to this agency or are they, are their own, their own separate agencies or their own public publicity firms? How does that work? Their own publicity. Okay. So an actor will have always have an agent. They're very rarely do they go without an agent. The agent is the one that's supposed to get, bring them projects, either get the work to them or farm them out and get them auditions everywhere. A manager is thinking about your entire life, your prop, you know, you as a brand, right? Your publicist is just about the media and the media paying attention to you. So those are three things a really big star has. And it's always kind of a joke in the PR community. Like the first one that gets fired is always the publicist. When somebody's unhappy, with their image, with their career, with what's going on. It's either the agent or the publicist that's fired first. That's just, it's considered the, the throwaway. So the big ones are, well, they actually are getting bought up and like over and over again. But when I was starting out, it was HBH, it was PMK, uh, Baker Winoker. They're all being eaten up and bought by each other. And the funny thing I can tell you is, is something like a PMK, which started out simply for movie stars. That was for big, big stars in like the 90s and early aughts. Nowadays, people like Amex and, and Coca-Cola and, and FedEx and everybody you can think of all these big brands that aren't sexy or interesting now have, want to go in with PMK because they now want to be a part of the projects that the movie stars are with. And so they, I know people who work at those agencies that's like, oh my God, I have this boring client and they think they're going to be in Entertainment Weekly. But, you know, because they pay all this money because this is a big agency. So it's 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 changed so much. I've been doing this for over 15 years. and It's changed greatly over time because media has changed over time, too. I want to talk a little bit about how you got your start. But I guess the, 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 the last question I have before we sort of segue into that is, does the publicist go after a client or does the client go after a publicist? And how does that usually work? Like if someone's, a, you know, an up and coming actor in Hollywood, they've got a few credits under their IMDb belt. Who, who's coming after who? In that case, it's the actor going for the publicist. And a publicist, you know, 
if you the thing with publicity like i said if you if you work just as hard as the person in marketing or in advertising but in marketing they they build up the billboards that you see on the street in advertising they put the ads in the newspaper the publicist is supposed to pitch the newspaper if you don't get your story in the newspaper people think you didn't work you work just as hard as everybody else they just didn't want what you had right and so when an actor comes in there and they're unknown and they're like, oh, I'll pay you three grand a month or four grand a month. I just want some publicity. You're like, okay, but there's no guarantee. And you don't want somebody that, you know, take money from them and have them come after you in a few months saying you ripped me off. I hear this all the time. Whenever I hear people say publicists ripped them off, I just want to strangle them because no, they didn't. It's just they didn't want you, <laughs> you know. I mean, a really good big firm like a PMK can say, look, you must feature this you better put this person on the today show i know they're unknown to you but they're going to be a big star and if you do that i promise you you can have this star to to introduce your summer concert series and that's how it's done so it's always a series of favors of that's how it that's how it is uh you i think you already answered the a, a follow-up question i had and that was sort of uh, i know managers and agents tend to work on a percentage of the earnings of the mm -hmm. particular client is a publicist paid up front are they also working on a percentage how exactly are publicists paid it's a monthly retainer and here's the secret if you're really really famous you don't even have to pay that much for it because they just want your name to get other clients or or they just want you, or just for the notoriety. Um, I know a couple of people who didn't pay their publicists for a couple of years, and uh, but they kept them on because they were a name and they wanted to be able to use that name when they were pitching their other clients, but it's usually a retainer. So let's talk a little bit about your experiences in the field. Mm -hmm. Why don't you take us right to the beginning, and uh, was it something that you had strived to sort of get into? Did you fall into it by accident? How did you get into that world? So I got a communications degree, which is about this basic of a degree as you can have, like English or a few others. It's just a degree. I never had any paid internships anywhere. You know, people talk about it all the time now. I worked to put myself through school and I worked retail. So my computer skills weren't all that great. You know, this is like 20 years ago. I, I was I was struggling. I was trying to find a job. I was living in the Bay Area. I graduated from San Jose State and I took all these aptitude tests and they said, film director or public relations professional. And I knew I didn't want to be a director. So I thought public relations, that sounds interesting. And then I was looking at the job market and the job market in San Francisco was terrible at the time, 94. So I thought LA or New York, I kind of flipped a coin and I'm originally from the East Coast. So I just came to New York and you know, sold my car, sold everything and just looked for PR jobs. And it was a couple of years of a lot of struggling, I have to tell you. So what, what came first, though? What was what was your first introduction into it? So I worked. I was at actually it was pretty fun for a year. I was a temp at Sony Pictures Ooh. and this is when they had Men in Black. And I, okay. yeah, I worked, I worked at a little PR uh, a publishing house for a year, but that doesn't count because it was really boring and you guys don't want to hear about that. So I, I worked for a year and a half at Sony Pictures as a temp and basically they float you around. One day you're in this department, one day you're in that department, but they usually liked me in the publicity department because I knew what it was and I was good at talking to people. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good gabber. I don't get nervous around famous people. I can kind of hold my own. But yeah, I remember that very well because it was the summer. It was it was Men in Black, and then the Julia Roberts film where she's going to marry her best friend, her best friend's wedding. That one with Cameron Diaz. Yeah, this was 1997. I remember yeah. that was the year that Men in Black came out. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of years I was in book publishing, and then I went into this was the job I had, and I had for a year and a half, and I absolutely loved it. And I remember we also the screening for that movie, the Julia Roberts film, and a couple of us were like. It's really not that good, but it's going to make a lot of money. Like, everyone's going to love it. And they were right. Everyone loved it, even though it's a terrible film. 
But uh, yeah, I actually rode in an elevator with Will Smith and he was very nice. That's my big thing. And Barry Sonnenfeld, uh, that was one of his big first big films. And the, um, me and another person were reading the reviews to him. Uh, you know, out of the actual newspaper holding in our hands, we were reading all these reviews to him, and he started crying. He was so excited. He was so happy that he did so well. Oh, so that that was going to be kind of a, a, another question I wanted to ask you is, what was your first big starstruck celebrity moment while you were on the job, and how, how well were you able to keep your composure, which it sounds like you had no problem because you said you don't really get nervous around celebrities. No, um, I'm always cool. When I was in college, I interned at a radio station. And it was a pretty popular morning show in San Francisco, and they always had big guests. And it was actually a show that was cool because they had a studio audience inside there. And so the celebrities liked to come because then they hear applause and things like that. So I had everybody, Ozzy Osbourne, John Cleese. Uh, I'm, just, like, I'm just going through my names in my head, but like really big you know, REM. We had just really big people there. And they would just say to me, don't freak out. Just act, you know, normal treat them normal, but deferential at the same time, you know, it's a little like that. And most people appreciate that. And most of them are really cool. Usually the celebrity is fine, maybe a little needy or something. It's the people they have around them. That's who you have to be afraid of because they're sort of paid to be meanies. They're, they're sort of the buffer, the buffer. correct? Between, between the celebrity and the real world. And I, I like to, them. I like to think. So, so you interned for a year at Sony. Okay. Mm-hmm. What, what comes after that? So I worked for a very small PR firm that doesn't exist anymore, but I don't want to say the name of the person because I think she's still alive. She's a little bit older, and she started a PR firm out of her, a little office out of uh, in a part of New York that is so expensive now in Union Square, but at the time it was kind of cruddy, and she only worked on really small independent films, really small, not like the cool 90s films that you know. But one film that it, we did work on, I could tell you about, is Sling Blade. And okay. Yeah, that was, I could tell you, watching someone change, you know, he, Billy Bob Thornton, that's his first big production, he wrote and directed it, and it was this big star vehicle. And at first, we couldn't get people interested in it, you know, that you described what the movie was about, and they're like, John Ritter, Dwight Yoakam? Who's this Billy Bob whatever? Wasn't he on that Burt Reynolds show? I don't care. And it was actually tough. And what they do actually is you pitch, it's called long lead media, all those big glossy magazines. You pitch them four, five, six months in advance. You beg the editors to come and see your screening. So they get excited about it. So that's when you know that movie star you want to be featured in the magazine or even on the cover, right? And we had a really hard time with him because he's kind of a peculiar guy. He's not the easiest person to talk to. He has a lot of phobias and fears, and he's well known for saying this, by the way. I'm not talking out of school, but somehow, all of a sudden, it started turning a corner with that movie, and all of a sudden, everybody started doing the mm-hmm sound that the character yeah. does, yeah. and he was always in Liz Smith's column, and then all of a sudden, he was in all the gossip columns, and everybody was talking about him, and he got really kind of freaked out about that because he was used to being a loner and kind of a weirdo you know, in his own world. And all of a sudden people are asking him, like, how come you've been married four times? And what's this about? And what's that about? And he just wasn't prepared for that. And it, it made him very uncomfortable. Now, speaking a little bit about Sling Blade, which I absolutely just love that movie. I think it's, Me too. I think it, it's just, a, I think it's a masterpiece of a film. And I think it's, I, I don't want to say that it's forgotten because certainly people in our age group know that movie. But I, I often think that it's probably kind of been lost to the sands of time. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you had a very difficult time selling the movie. 
Talk to me about the first time you actually watched the movie, because I imagine you had to uh, do a screening of it before it was even famous, before it was sold. I mean, take me through the first time you saw this movie. Nobody knows who Billy Bob, Billy Bob Thornton is. It's, just just talk to me a little bit about that. So it's a Miramax production, and Harvey Weinstein did like him. He made a short film of that character. Actually, and he stars with it um, with Molly Ringwald. That's how that movie started. And he made a little short film of that, and he sold that to Weinstein's. And there, and the wine scenes then tried to find, they, they didn't have the room, the, the number of people in-house to take care of it, because at the time, Miramax was making like a dozen films a month or something like that. So you give it to a littler agency and have them be in charge of it. And so this person that I worked for was in charge of that one. And I don't think she even really liked it very much at first. I loved it. And the other younger people there, we all really loved it. She was not that into it. But then, I, you know, you start seeing these movies three or four times. And then they kind of like get under your skin. And she, she was, yeah, she, uh, she didn't really love it at first, but she wound up really loving it. But I, I've, the, the Miramax company is kind of famous for being a tough place. And I could tell you, oh yeah, <laughs> it's very, very tough. I've been yelled at many a time by people there. Can you give me just an example without naming names of an experience without where you got yelled names? at? Oh yeah, well one time I I wasn't even what there was a screening for a movie that's really bad. I'm not going to say who it was, but I was there as a volunteer to help out. Uh they, the the screening was ending and then they were going to a party someplace else. And I leave the screening and it's the very end like everyone's gone and this woman grabs me and she goes, "Where are all the publicists?" And I was like, "Huh?" She goes, all these people are walking out in the press everywhere. Where are all the publicists? I was like, I, I don't know. And she started yelling at me. Like, it wasn't my job. She didn't even know me. But she just grabbed my arm. Just said, where are all I said, I don't know. And then you, I've learned to say this. Let me find out for you. And then you just run away. Right. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that, that's became, that became a catchphrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, let me find out for you. You say that very emphatically, and then you just take off. And, like, you know. Make it somebody else's problem. Did you spend any time with Billy Bob Thornton while you were no. working on that film? Did no. you meet him at all? Yes, I did get to meet him. I didn't get to spend time with him. He was very charming. He was uh, at my job. I met him very quickly. He wanted to get a um, a Charlie Chaplin doll for his kid, one of his kids. And so my job was to run, find a Charlie Chaplin doll. And Dana, I went everywhere in New York City, and I could not find one. And I had to tell him I couldn't find one. I was so I was so worried my boss would be mad at me because she was with him. And I, and I almost had tears in my eyes like, I went to Toys R Us. I went to this place. I went to that place. I called everywhere. And he was kind of disappointed. He was, well, I really appreciate that effort. He really could tell like I was disappointed. And, and he handled it very nicely. He was he was totally fine. But he was he was freaked out. You could tell he was really nervous about being famous. Let's just uh, flash forward to 2016 and... He has become infinite, infamous, if not notorious, for certain um, uh, situations he's found himself in. Um, how much of a change do you think you've seen in him? I mean, I know we don't really know him right. now, but just just from just from the, the way he sort of carries himself with, with, with the media, I'm always uh, reminded of the. Do you remember the uh, Yanni Gomesh? interview he gave up in Canada <laughs> on, on the queue. Brian Gameshi, who turns out to be a total creep, by the way. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. He's a total but, but asshole. <laughs> he, uh, he had um, Billy Bob Thornton on with, uh, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, he, uh, Billy Bob Thornton, what was his name of his band? The Boxcars or something, something like, like that? that yeah. Something like that. And they were, they were a, bl- a bluegrass band. They were touring Canada. And the queue is this 
was this actually it's still on the air with a different ho- it has a different host now but it was this uh it's an incredibly popular uh music talk show that in canada um i, I actually don't have anything in america to compare it to well Fresh anyway air. but for, yeah okay so, yeah absolutely that's a great that's a great perfect so you know billy bob thornton's on there with his band and i guess the host was essentially told not to bring up the fact that Billy Bob Thornton's a star, a Hollywood star, uh, and only talk about the music. Well, when the host made the introduction, he mentioned, you know, he was Academy Award winning, you know, writer, director, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and basically, Billy Bob Thornton ambushed the rest of the interview and was just completely shut down for in like a 20 minute segment. It's some of the most uncomfortable yeah. uh, 20 minutes you can ever watch. Secondly, the Boxmasters principal songwriter, singer and drummer is a guy named Billy Bob Thornton, whose other job uh, some of the time is Oscar winning screenwriter, actor and director. While Billy Bob Thornton's name is most often linked to his cinematic endeavors, the Boxmasters is anything but a diversion from the silver screen. He's always intended to make music and he just got side track these days music is a major priority in his life and it's something he's obviously embracing and i'm pleased to have all the members of the box masters billy bob thornton jg andrew mike butler and danny baker here in studio q hello boys hey how's it going good, good to good have morning. you here three albums in the past year <laughs> what? Yeah. that's that seems ambitious that's the, that's the ones that have been released you know, yeah we've, we've recorded about five there's more yeah <laughs> I mean, yeah. you guys formed, uh, Billy Bob, you, you guys formed only in the last couple of years, right? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> How so? I don't know what you mean by that. Well, did, when, <coughs> when, did, when did the band form? I'm not sure what that means. And I'm just wondering, is that a different Billy Bob Thornton than the one that you met in the late 90s? Absolutely. But I think he's also more of himself. He was always peculiar, he really has a fear of antique furniture. That's not a thing. He, he, <laughs> he, he, and he believes in psychic power. He also like ate squirrel when he was a kid and would, would go on and on how great squirrel tastes. I think he likes to say that too to freak people out. But he, he's very, very odd, very, very peculiar. And I think he's just more of himself now because he's older too. I think he's just sort of given that up. He was a working actor, a character actor for many years. And then, like I said, he just blew up. And then he started, and all of a sudden, it was crazy because then he was on the Ellen show. Do you remember that? I do. When yeah. Ellen comes out, and that was he was married at the time, and then he was with Laura uh, Laura Dern, and he met Laura Dern there. So all of a sudden, he's Laura Dern's boyfriend. It was very great, and then he won an Oscar like a month later. It was like all around the, the same time. And then he went on to be an Armageddon, and then he became mm-hmm. a big movie star. And so and that's then he's yeah. In so Fargo. that's good. Which I loved in, him in Fargo. I thought he was fantastic in that show. Uh, he was absolutely the best part of that show with an already amazing cast. So mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree with you. So we can – okay, so we'll save Billy Bob Thornton for uh, – I'm absolutely going to do an episode on, on Sling Blade, and you, of course, will have to be my co-host for that episode. Okay. So we'll, we'll definitely spend some more time on I that. I can talk about Dwight Yoakam with you there. Okay, we'll so his character, <laughs> yeah, we'll save it for that one because his character is stunning Amazing. in that movie. Absolutely stunning. So let's talk about, I, I'm going to ask you to sort of briefly talk about where you were at in the, the early 2000s, sort of some of the responsibilities you had. And then I want to talk about how social media changed the game. So I went from working at Sony and then I worked at a, a pretty famous PR agency that I didn't mention before, but it's another one with initials that people know about. And there, I actually, I didn't work on many movies, but I've worked on TV shows. And it's the same thing. It's just, you know, famous people managing them. 
And there's a lot of difference between with a movie. There's the studio publicist. They're in charge of the business end of keeping the PR good. Like when Sony had their nightmare of the hacking of the emails and stuff like that, they have their own PR person just to take care of them and their executives. And then Sony has publicists for different projects for films. And then they hire people to be the PR firm for that. But then there's also something, it's, it's a, the unit publicist, which is a person that goes on site and, and does the publicity for that. And so, you know, I know I've done all of these things and it's crazy. It's, it's, it's amazing, but it's, it's an, it's the industry is just, there's so much money at stake for every single film and for every single executive shuffle and everything like that. They're under so much pressure to perform. And when I was starting out in the business, you mailed, okay, okay, you mailed invitations to people that had a sheet that said all this, what the screening was and all the times that they go. And I used to fax back and forth, you know, the PR reports. Nowadays, you know, somebody on social media can go in and take their phone and film a movie or a few movie scenes and then say, this movie sucks. And then all of a sudden the movie sucks. It, it's, it's just incredible. Like everything moves so quickly now and people can either ruin or repair a relationship or, or, or their image in, in a, a tweet. It's, it's pretty incredible how much it's changed. Well, that's what I wanted to sort of segue into. I, I, I want to present a scenario to you. Uh, it's a real-life scenario, and I'd love for you to sort of give your insight on how you would handle that if you were still, say, with Sony. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but they're going through a bit of a, a tumultuous time right now with a film that's getting get ready to be released uh, in a few days. And I'm talking about what in the world does the PR department for Ghostbusters do with everything that has gone wrong with the release and the negative uh, uh, backlash the trailer has received? What would you have been doing if you were at Sony to, to try to try to change people's minds? Or, or, or please, please explain. The best thing you can do and, and the best thing they did have is they had Judd Apatow uh, behind them. And he's excellent on Twitter. He is always on there. You know, if he's not talking about Bill Cosby, he's talking about Ghostbusters. He, and he's very supportive of other comics. And he's really good at keeping that conversation on point and on focus. And there's certain comedians like Patton Oswalt has been very supportive of Ghostbusters. It, it's this incredible time where, as a woman, you can hear misogyny louder than ever, but you can also hear people decrying that misogyny quickly. And it's, it's being attacked now in real time, which is pretty... I think it's pretty amazing, but in the case of this movie, the, the amount of haterade thrown on it is ridiculous, and it is because it's women and guys whining about their childhoods, you know, going awry. I think they've handled it as best as they could. I mean, you have top top talent. They they put the four of them out there on all the shows. They're great together. They have great chemistry. You can't blame them. You know, they're they're doing their best. I, I think you you stick with the social media and you stick with the people who are good to you. But I'm sure I am definitely sure they got they got the the nice writer from Entertainment Weekly or whatever magazine they're going to be in to do the big cover story on them. See, that's what I'm talking about right there. So there, would you say that they um, maybe a lot of favors that have been saved up were cashed in for this movie? And I I, I want to start by saying that I I think that, and I just want the the record to be clear that I think it's absolutely, utterly ridiculous 
what is going on with with this movie that hasn't even been released yet. I'm actually excited as hell to see the film, and I can't wait. I'm probably going to break my don't go to the movies opening weekend rule just to go see it. That's how amped up I am for this movie. So I I just want to make sure that all the listeners understand that I'm pro Ghostbusters a hundred percent on this one. So uh, my question, I'll go back to my question again: Is do you feel like the the PR departments for Sony and Columbia and, and all the studios like they really called in those favors to those? those writers that have always sort of been good to them and said, hey, listen, we need you to do your best work possible on on these stories because this is unfair what's happening to us. The thing you have to overcome is like a guy with 5,000 followers on YouTube is considered as powerful as a, a reporter for Entertainment Weekly. That's what's kind of scary to me. Like a guy with like no numbers or, or just boneheads for fans but he, he can all of a sudden say, I'm just not going to see the movie whatsoever and get press for that. It's it's incredible. It, it is it's incre- it is interesting, and you and you mentioned the fact that um, I I find that uh, like on my like with my show I have been lucky enough to amass a, a, a small amount of followers by in the grand scheme of things it's not a huge amount of followers but it's enough to where I do almost on a weekly basis get requests to 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 view movies can we send you this movie would you be willing to talk about this movie would uh can we send you a copy of this blah 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 so uh, I'm, I'm saying do you feel like sometimes that that there's a publicist behind that saying hey listen even though this person only has twenty thousand followers we think we should send this information out to him because it's kind of like what you said somebody with even that low of a number has a voice now oh absolutely and you know i do this i i do pr for my clients now i mean it's great to be what I, this is my example Kate Winslet will always get on the Today Show if she wants to be on the Today Show, right? Right. Not every person that watches on the Today Show is going to go see her movie. You know, most people won't. She makes she makes these more highfalutin art films, but you do it because you got to try to get her out there as to as many people as possible. But if she's on Fresh Air, like we mentioned before on NPR, Fresh Air, and she gives a really good interview, people are like, I heard her on Fresh Air. I'm going to go see that movie because that's the that- audience that will like it. So yeah, it totally makes sense. So that's that's an inter- that's really interesting. I didn't really think about that for a second. That it sometimes the biggest shows out there, the Today Show, Good Morning America, Entertainment Tonight. You're saying that a, a lot of times that might not be the, the the audience for the project that you're representing. I didn't really put put it together that you'd still have to be target specific sometimes with your audience. Like even a Super Bowl commercial. All right, may not get to the audience that you're looking for. Like that's I'm just I think I'm thinking out loud by saying all this, but I think that's really interesting. You touched on that yeah. with the uh, Today Show versus like the Fresh Air appearance, and you're absolutely right with two different audiences there. I had a client that they were in. Um, they I, I, I hope they don't listen to this episode, but they were in O Magazine and featured in O Magazine their their name and their product, and they sold a few, a few, you know, a handful, but they were online for this the site called Pure Wow which is this women's fashion site and they sold through the roof. It's, it's just, you know, cause it's a kind of thing like, or if you're looking at a story online, a shopping story online, you immediately click, you know what I mean? And, and you go, it's call to action. That's what you, that's, you go there to look for stuff you want to buy versus, you know, flipping through O magazine, you can be flipping through that for any reason. But yeah, people always want to be on the tonight show. That always makes, if I were a publicist now for a big celebrity, if you want to be on the Tonight Show, you better be ready to either sing, or do karaoke, 
or do beer pong, you have to have now like a stunt associated with you that could have absolutely nothing to do with your film. But they want something now that they could put on YouTube later so that everybody will share on their Facebook page. So that they have that pressure now. Like it's not even just to get the person on the show. You know, they may have to do something extra crazy to be memorable because they don't want just a regular interview anymore. Those don't do it very well. That's interesting. Now, before we wrap things up here, I do have just a couple quick questions I want I want to know. Now, what is the busiest week you can ever recall that you 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 probably worked? I was working on the Queen Latifah talk show. This is the okay. one from 99. I did, yeah, I remember that. Absolutely. I had a cell phone for the first time in my life. I had a company that gave me a cell phone, but we didn't have Blackberries or anything like that. So you, I had to actually, I would go for the first, I would get into the office at about 7.30, work for a few hours, then go to a taping at the Queen Latifah show. And then in between segments, I would call my assistant. She had to read me my emails. <laughs> oh, my God. And then I had to tell her what to write, and she was kind of dumb. So sometimes she would get things wrong. <laughs> it was crazy. And then at lunchtime, in between the, the segments, I'd run back to the office, try to fix the emails, and do and do some pitching and stuff that I – because I had four other accounts I have to be working on. Then I have to go back to the Queen Latifah show, and she was always running late. I could be there from, like, 2 to 6 or 7, and then go back to the office and do whatever stuff. And then I'd go home and rest for a few hours, and then I'd go back in again. I remember that that I would never, ever, you couldn't pay me to work on a talk show again. I could talk to you for hours about talk shows. I know so much stuff. I know it's not how is this talk show, but <laughs> if you no, ever no, no, want no, that, fine, yeah. I can give you stories <laughs> that are crazy pants. But that was, and I, okay. I think I had like Marie Claire magazine. I had Queen Latifah show. I had like three or four like really high level stuff. W Hotels. It was just like, all over the map and like and then at the end of the day like well, what press did you get us well i don't know i had to sit in a screening room for three hours you know waiting for somebody to, to start their talk show or i had to do this i had to do that it was it was so much pressure and it's so much work so i guess the the last question i have before we wrap things up here is i know you've said that you do not get starstruck and you're you're super super cool around celebrities but through your work was there ever a personality, a celebrity, somebody that you've always wanted to meet that you got an opportunity to meet through your work and that you probably wouldn't have got an, an opportunity otherwise and you were, for lack of a better word, starstruck? I, I, okay, so I met George Clooney and John Cusack together. I worked an event for them. And I didn't know they were friends. And I wanted to meet John Cusack like my whole life, like since I was a teenager. And George Clooney, of course, because he's George Clooney, and I, it was a charity night kind of thing. And it was a cocktail party. And basically, and I forget what the charity was for. It was like a, uh, it was like a kids and education kind of thing. I don't remember exactly what it was. But anyway, what they did was like you paid $200, $300, and you had a cocktail and you schmoozed with these actors. And they hopefully got, wanted to get more money out of you. So they were just fundraising. So it was just doing that for a couple of hours. And then when it was over, they kind of kicked everybody out. And our little group of PR people we were stay, staying off to ourselves. And John Cusack and uh, George Clooney just kind of came over and talked with us. And we're very cool. George Clooney especially was so nice, so warm and, and genuine. And, and he acted just like you would want George Clooney to act. And that was like, oh, for me, awesome. it was such a delight. And then I had bronchitis that night. And I was I was trying not to get sick. He, he kissed me on the cheek. I said, please don't kiss me. I'm sick. He kissed me anyway. 
and then our photographer of the event was taking pictures of us in this circle and he and he says margo look up right now and so i looked up as best as i could he took a picture and i have this great picture of me with george clooney that i'll send to you Oh, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. All right. Well, listen, Margo, I, I mean, I could probably spend the next three hours talking to you about this. And, and I think we'll have to have you back on soon to sort of go into some more of these stories because I, I find it fascinating. Uh, you know, I just want to tell everybody that before I started this show, I've always been a big movie fanatic. I've always been a big movie buff. Um, but it really took me doing the show over the past almost three years to understand, you know, how many people are behind the scenes in this industry and, and getting a chance to talk to you, Margo, about, you know, the, the role you played in, in some of these, you know, in some of these movies, some of these projects, some of these talk shows. Um, uh, it's just fascinating to me. So I, I really, really, you know, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank you for, for, for spending a little bit of time with me and talking about it. So uh, go ahead and let everybody know once again uh, what, about your show real quick, where they can find you and all that good stuff. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Once again, it's, Book versus movie podcast, wherever you get your podcast, just do a little search book versus movie podcast and you will find us. I co-host that with my friend Margot. You can find us at our old tiny website, bookversusmovie.com, or if you go to Facebook, Twitter, just spell out book versus movie, you will find us. And we also have an, an email, book versus movie podcast at gmail.com. If you ever have any suggestions for shows that you want us to do, please reach out to us and uh, thank you so much again for this opportunity. Absolutely. Listen, Margo, we will talk very soon, I'm sure. Have a good night, okay? You too.